Hello again. Thanks, Andy. Okay. Our series title is Your God is Too Small. And uh, we come to this part of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, or it's actually beginning of 52, and it's possibly one of the most uh, quoted and well-known bits of Isaiah. It's the kind of one that you were probably taught in Sunday school, and you got a sticker or a lollipop for remembering. Uh, But before we get stuck into that, I've got a little challenge for you. You're excited, I can tell. Right, I want you to have a look at a picture I'm going to put up, and tell me what's there. Coffee beans. Coffee beans everywhere. I'm not just obsessed with coffee, I promise you. Okay, coffee beans everywhere. Coffee beans at the top, at the bottom, in the middle, to the top left, to the top right, everywhere, okay? Loads of coffee beans. Wait for it, Andy. Wait for it. Apart from Andy, can anyone see the face? Put your hand up if you can see the face. Don't point it out yet. That's cheating. Put your hand up if you cannot see the face. No matter how hard you look, can you see the face? Okay, watch this. I'm going to show you where the face is, and then you will not be able to not see the face. Are you ready? There's going to be a red circle around it. Are you ready? Are you looking carefully? There it is. There's a bloke hiding in the coffee beans. Now, I want, you to, listen, I want you to close your eyes now, especially those who didn't know where it was before. Close your eyes, right, and open them again. Can you see the face? You can't not see the face once you've seen it. And it's a little bit like that in this passage, believe it or not. It's like we kind of know they're talking about Jesus. So it's really hard not to read this and go, but we know it's Jesus they're talking about. It's a bit like those kind of puzzles or, like, or, or a movie where you kind of know what the twist at the end is. You rewatch the movie and you go, yeah, but I know who the person is. I know who the killer is. I know who the hero is. I kind of know the answer. And it's Jesus. So it's kind of, let's not pretend that we don't know it's Jesus. All right? But let's explore this very familiar passage and see what it might say. Because one day... There was a guy, a very high-ranking official in Ethiopia, and he was traveling back from Jerusalem in a carriage, and he was reading this passage, and he was going, do you know what? I have no idea what's going on. So God sent this guy called Philip alongside him, and he said, just walk alongside. And then he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he goes, I haven't got a clue. I don't know, who is this person? And it says that Philip began with that very passage and told him the good news of Jesus Christ. And then afterwards, when this Ethiopian eunuch read that passage, he couldn't see anything else but Jesus. Because the thing is, Jesus is the focus of Scripture in its entirety. But the problem with us is that we live linearly. We've done this before a couple of weeks ago. We live on a timeline from past, present, and future. We stand in the present. We look behind us to the past, look ahead to the future. We're stuck here. But what we know is that God is beyond that. 
And we marveled at that fact a few weeks ago. And we marveled at the fact of God's greatness. He is outside of time. He sees past, present, future in an instant to him because time was created by him. And the thing is, the cross is an eternity event. It's not just a historical one. So the cross is effective over past, present, and future. Remember this passage that's ever so familiar that explains about Jesus was actually written about 500 years before Jesus was born. We kind of forget that. We think that someone did a bit of a copy and paste from the New Testament into the Old Testament and just pretend that it didn't happen. This is 500 years before Jesus is actually born. So we have about 300 prophecies, at least 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in his life, his death, his birth, and his ministry, all that. But not just the prophecies. We also have stories in the Old Testament that reflect something of the story of Jesus. We have Jonah in the, in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That sounds familiar. We have the picture of, of the Passover where the blood of the lamb is spread over the doorposts and death passes over. And then we have the rituals that have been put in place by God to say when you sin, sacrifice an animal and the blood will actually be for your salvation. We've got these prophecies, we've got these stories, we've got these rituals that all talk about Jesus. They all point to Jesus. Because they are reminders of a future event which has already happened. Spend a bit of time in that sentence. All of these, the stories, the pictures, the prophecies, even the rituals, are reminders of a future event which has already happened. Is your mind a little bit melted yet at the greatness of our God? If it isn't, well done you, because mine certainly is. And here's a little bit of sneaky evidence that, it, that Isaiah 53 is a reminder of a future event that has already happened because notice, most of Isaiah 53 is written in the past tense. Check it out. Evelyn did. She grabbed the Bible this morning and went, let's have a look at it. Oh, yeah, you're right. Most of this is in the past tense. Isaiah, the person who's written this down, is seeing something happen in the future and it has, been happened, it has happened over eternity. This is a reminder of an event which has already happened. So we go to Isaiah 53, and in this really hot weather, we're going to go climb a mountain. Is that all right? It'll be cooler at the top, I promise. All right? Because this passage, um, Isaiah 52 through to 53, um, is, it's called the servant song, the fourth servant song, and it's split up into five three-verse stanzas as we look at it, but actually it's, it's got a particular poetic pattern called the chiastic pattern, which means the most important bit is absolutely at the center. So we're going to climb that mountain together. Are you ready? Have you got your walking boots? Have you got your crampons and your ropes and your, I don't know, Kendall mint cake? Here we go. We're going to start a base camp, and we're going to go all the way up, and then we'll nip down again quickly for our tea afterwards. So the first part in base camp, it says, my servant will be exalted. That's not a surprise because we know that God's servant, God's going to win. And that's what the people who read it, they went, yeah, of course, God's servant's going to win. He's going to be exalted. But the next bit is a bit of a twist. He says, but this is how he's going to be exalted. 
It's like we're getting a glimpse of God's battle plans. He's saying, this is how it's going to pan out. And it's not how people expected. We see echoes of this in Philippians 2, 6 to 11. This is how it's going to happen. He's going to be exalted, but to get there, he's going to be appalling to people. His appearance is going to be disfigured and marred even beyond human likeness. That's not the path of greatness, is it? For what purpose are we going to see this? The reason is it says, so he will sprinkle many nations. This is a reference back to Leviticus and to the rituals in the temple. Where whenever uh, on the day of atonement, when the blood of a, of a sacrificial animal was shed, a priest, a high priest would take a bunch of probably hyssop and take some of the blood and spread it over things to purify them. Over the people, they'd be sprinkled. Notice it says, he will sprinkle, he will purify, he will make righteous many nations, not just Israel. Here we see that the gospel's everywhere, not just for Israel. And it's so powerful, it shuts up kings. The pinnacle of power and glory and might are shut up because they go, whoa, I'm stumped at this. I don't get it. For what they weren't told, they will see. What they've not heard, they will understand. Are you ready to move up from base camp? No? Tough. <laughs> Let's move up to the next one. Who's believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, actually, to Israel for about the past thousand years. But they haven't got it. Even up to the point where Jesus is standing before the high priest, a guy called Caiaphas. He doesn't get it. He knows this passage, but doesn't see the correlation. He doesn't see the man hidden in the coffee beans. And so he condemns Jesus to death. He doesn't realize he's actually fulfilling it. In John, he actually says, it's better for one man to die than for the whole world to die. He's prophesying, he doesn't even realize it. And so what do we find out? He grew up, Jesus, the righteous servant, grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. Who saw this coming? Nobody. Because frankly, it's ridiculous. He is born in obscurity. He's tiny, he's unknown. Do you see why our phrase, your God is too small, is not just an indictment, it's actually what people thought about Jesus. He can't be God. He's too small. Our God was too small. He was life in a dead place. Life springing out of a dry ground. Jesus made himself weak. That's what we read in Philippians 2. But he was more weaker than weak. In fact, he had a distinct disadvantage. Do you know whenever you're um, racing or playing with one of your children, perhaps, and uh, you say, okay, well, I'll tell you what, I, I'll hop and you can run, or I'll, I'll run backwards, or I'll crawl, just to make it a bit more even. In other words, you give yourself a disadvantage. Well, Jesus gave himself disadvantage after disadvantage. We thought it was just becoming a human. More than that, he was the lowest of the low. It says, there was no beauty or majesty to attract him to us. Did anyone see the Bible miniseries that was on just a couple of years ago? It was a brilliant piece of work. It was released as a Son of God movie. Um, there was a bit of controversy about the guy who was cast to play Jesus. And the controversy was, he was too pretty. Here he is. <laughs> He's too attractive 
to play Jesus. He looks a bit like Brad Pitt. And we, oh, there was actually, I do apologize, but there were some women who wrote in and said, I'm sorry, he's too distracting. Because, and some people quoting this passage saying, the Bible says there is nothing to attract him to us, so he should be ugly. Nonsense. This is not about kind of male model looks. Actually, if you watch it, this guy does a great performance as Jesus. Really highly recommended, even though he was considered too pretty for it. It's not that Jesus was unnaturally or unattractive or ugly. Well, it wasn't anything like that. He was normal. He was one of us. He grew up like a tender shoot. He was unremarkable. He didn't have a halo. No matter what the Renaissance painters thought, he didn't have his own electricity supply. He didn't have a globe going around going, please mind the doors because I've got to get my halo in as well. He just looked like one of us. One of the gang. But more than that, he was despised. The religious authorities despised him because to them, he was blasphemous. The Judeans despised him because he was, he was from Galilee. The Galileans despised him because he was from Nazareth. The people from Nazareth despised him because he was an unmarried, he was a child of an unmarried mother. And then later on in life, he says some really ridiculous things that really offend them. He was a despised man from a despised village in a despised region amongst a despised people. Talk about a disadvantage. Talk about taking the very nature of a slave. It says he was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. The, the Hebrew words are a man of makobe, sorrows, a man of pain, familiar with suffering, kole, sickness and illness. He was familiar with it. He knows what it's like. It often has annoyed me in the past whenever um, I see pictures of Jesus and he's just a grump. Or the Jesus of Nazareth series, did you ever watch that? And Jesus is just miserable the whole time. And I think, who'd want to walk and follow him? Because I do believe that Jesus laughed, I believe he smiled, I believe he sang, I believe he danced, I believe he joked, I believe he was full of life. But let's get that true, that's true, but make no mistake, this is a man who knew pain, sickness, and suffering, and sorrow. He is familiar with pain and sickness. What other God in the history of the world, what other story of a God shows a God who willingly comes down and suffers like his people for no selfish reason? Our God knows firsthand how tough it is to be one of us. He knows how tough it is to live life. But what is it that actually makes Jesus unattractive? Because I think Jesus can be unattractive, maybe even to us at times. Have you ever had one of those times where you, you have a shirt or your child has a shirt that's filthy? and they're wearing it, and then they're sipping some tomato soup, and it spills down the front, and you go, it doesn't matter, it's filthy anyway. Yeah, you've seen that? What about when they're wearing their brand spanking new t-shirt, and they're having spaghetti bolognese? <laughs> and they drip that one bit of sauce that seems to be magnified, because it's, everything else is absolutely pure 
and clean. Jesus experienced sickness, suffering, pain, and sorrow. All the consequences of sin, Jesus, God's servant, experienced the full effects of. And we didn't, and we don't like seeing it. Because it's like when, it's, when we are covered and we make a mistake, it just blends in with our sinfulness. But when Jesus, in the purity and whiteness of his holiness, has the effects of sin thrown against him, it screams out and we can't avoid seeing the effect of sin. So we turn our faces away. Do you remember when the packaging for cigarettes started advertising these things, which was, um, here is a healthy set of lungs and here is a, here's a, a damaged, diseased set of lungs. And there was an outcry because people went, we don't like that, that's offensive, that's too graphic, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see the consequences of my actions, what could happen. And so what do people do? They turn their face away. I don't want to see the effects of my sin, the consequences to me or to other people. I don't want to see it on you, Jesus, so I'm going to look away. So people turn their faces away from Jesus. They don't want to know. It's why the cross is so difficult to look at. Because whilst the cross is the symbol of our salvation, it is also the symbol that tells us salvation is necessary. It's a reminder that there's sin in the first place. Otherwise, there would be no need for a cross. So whilst it is a symbol of hope, it is the symbol that there's damage that needs fixing. And so in the cross, Jesus exposes sin for what it is. He exposes the effects the severity, the consequences, and the sheer, unadulterated ugliness of sin we see nailed to a cross. And so we turn our faces away, even Christians sometimes. Are you ready to go up to the summit? Yeah? Come on, a bit more enthusiasm. I worked hard on this. Let's get up to the top. And the top is this middle section, verses four to six. Um, it's like when you get to the top of a mountain and you, you get to the top and you're all excited and you go over a ridge and you realize there's another peak. Well, this one peaks as well. We're gonna start at verse four. It says that he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Matthew in chapter eight reflects on this when he says, he writes that Jesus' healing and his deliverance ministry was fulfilling this prophecy. Jesus took up, he accepted on himself, he carries our sicknesses. It says he bore the burden. Long term is the Hebrew word. He carried our pains. 1 John 3 and verse 8 says Jesus' mission was to come to destroy the work of the evil one, to destroy the effects of sinfulness. So Jesus' healing is a little bit like charcoal. I learned this on some survival stuff, is that when we want to purify water, one of the best things is to put it through charcoal because charcoal is so porous, it draws out the impurities that could damage us and it still remains kind of unchanged. What an amazing picture of what Jesus does when he heals. He doesn't just touch someone and then, whoa, magic trick, they're better. He draws out the poison of sin onto himself. So it's not just blindness, zap, gone. He draws out that effect of sin. He draws out the effect of sin in death by rising again. He draws out the poison into himself. 
And it's too hard to grasp, so people think, well, he must have been punished for something. At least that's what the religious authorities thought. Blasphemy! That's why he's on the cross, because we can't take that he's drawing out the sin from all of us. So the pinnacle of this mountain is on verse 5, but we're not going there yet. We're going to nip across to verse 6 first. Is that okay? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why has he done all this? Because we all have messed up. All of us. There are big echoes seen in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So let's not in any way, shape, or form get a sense of self-righteousness. Disregard whether you've been going to church for 20, 30, 40 years. Whether you are on every rota that's going. Whether you've led 50 people to Christ or not. Whether you think you know your Bible brilliantly and you raise your hands and worship. All have sinned. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. This message is for all of us. Not just those filthy sinners over there. We all, like sheep, have... You see sheep in the deals, don't you? If you go for a walk, especially whenever I'm walking around Grassington, I've seen this a few times. Some sheep down a ditch on its back, tangled up in some wire going, man, I don't know how it got here. <laughs> and you have to try and help them out. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. The Hebrew word is literally wandered off. We all, like sheep, have wandered off. You know what sheep are like? But the thing is, they wander off because they've stopped listening to the shepherd's call. They've stopped sticking close to the shepherd. And because of that, they will go and follow any shiny little thing any new thing, or just follow the crowd because they must know where they're going down that ditch. They stop listening to the shepherd. How many of you out there have felt or feel cold in your faith? Using the old-fashioned term, backslidden, doubting, not sure about God. Because in my experience, both personally and with other people, one of the questions to ask is, how often do you spend time with the Lord? Uh, invariably, it's like, well, maybe once every so, not so much. Life's awfully busy. Then no surprise that you've wandered off and things have got tricky because we've stopped listening to the shepherd. We wander off inadvertently and then we only realize it when we've fallen down a ditch and we need saving. So that's the inadvertent description of sin. But then the next one, each of us has turned to their own way. You know that toddler tantrum. Come along with me. No. Each of us have turned to our own way. This is outright rebellion. And the Lord has laid the guilt of this on him. We've gone to our own way. That's why we have the word repentance, which means a 180 degree turn to go this way because we've pented. We've gone the opposite way than we should do. And we need to turn. And follow God. Frank Sinatra sang, I did it my way. And Jesus goes, well, you did it the wrong way. Are you ready to get to the summit now? It's cooler up there. And the views are great. Are you ready? Just for a moment, I'd like you to read that verse really slowly and carefully. I don't care if you memorized it as a child. Maybe you want to change our to my. 
Read it. Dwell on it. I want you to take it away today and carry it with you. Here at the peak of this mountain, in an Old Testament book, in the middle of the Bible, is the heart of the gospel. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was wounded. Here is the heart of the gospel and the epicenter of grace. Where the head-on collision between justice and mercy is seen in all its rawness. He was crushed. He was pierced. And he was wounded. This is an incredibly vivid and visceral, and accurate description of crucifixion. Do you want to have a little mind-blowing incident? Yeah? This was written about 580 or so BC. Crucifixion wasn't invented at this point. The first recording of any kind of crucifixion was about 522 BC by the Persians, the people who were in power when Isaiah was writing this. Pierced. Crushed. You die by asphyxiation on the cross, by the way. Not by blood loss. And by his wounds, it can be translated very accurately as stripes. Welts by a whip. Do you think someone's got a sneak preview of what's going to happen? Or as we said earlier, a preview of an event which has already happened in the future. 500 years before the event. Why did this happen? Well, the reason is because of our transgressions. Understanding of this, transgressions actually means pure and all-out rebellion. It's an attitude of rebelliousness. It's a breaking of trust. It's rebellion in little ways and huge ways. The personal ways, the ways no one knows, our attitudes that stink before God. Or the huge ways, our communal, our institutional, our international ways that we are rebellious against God. Our transgressions and our iniquities. What does iniquities mean? We've read it out loads of times. What does it actually mean? Well, iniquities are the acts that you've done that are outright wrong. They're the the charges that are brought against you when you're a guilty criminal in a court case and you said you are guilty of these charges, you're guilty of these iniquities, these actions. So our attitudes of rebelliousness and our actions of wrongdoing caused the righteous Son of God to be pierced and crushed on him and it's by his wounds we are healed. He has taken the punishment, the consequences, the penalty that were ours and justly deserved. And we call this substitution. John Stott, in his brilliant book, The Cross of Christ, writes this. Substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. God accepts the penalties which belong to man alone. And Paul puts it like this in Romans 3, 
God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at this present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. He is just, justice has been served, but he's the one that has faced the penalty for us. That's substitution. He has taken it for us. Here is the gospel. Here is the rescue plan, the rescue event, the cure and the core solution. Our debt, our punishment taken by the one who doesn't deserve it, but is the only one who can take it. Our punishment taken to give us peace. Shalom. It's not just a Christian cliche or a car sticker. Shalom. Peace. Completeness. Wholeness. Restoration. Total functionality as you should be. He has taken that upon himself. Sin seeks to destroy and damage. And his wounds seek to restore our peace. It's amazing while we've been doing Alpha. The number of people who have not been that, that church, who have talked about the sense of peace that they have that doesn't make sense because they've experienced God's love for them and his sacrifice for them. And they've experienced this shalom that they've never had before. And they're hopping about it. And you know what? I shocked someone the other day who was talking about this. And I said, you know what? Loads of Christians in this church and other churches have lost that sense of wonder, or that sense of shalomness. Oh, God, help us recover it by looking at this verse today. Our peace and our healing. This is not just about a quick fix of a broken leg or removal of cancer. This is about ultimate healing, a restoration of our relationship with God, which ultimately will be seen in heaven where all things will be restored. We're starting to come down the mountain now. We'll do it quickly because we want to get back for our tea. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. This is a picture of what Jesus did. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. You know the story, don't you? Or the song. But the thing is, he said he was like a lamb. He is no lamb. He was a lion. A lion who willingly was taken, bound, and beaten. A lion who could summon the legions of heaven to his aid, but... St- but chose to remain silent to the charges, the abuse, the accusations, the punches, the whips, and the nails, just like the Aslan movie or a book. He could have caused chaos amongst his enemies, but he took it. He chose to take it. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? It did to Steve Chalk, who a number of years ago caused a bit of furor when he said this picture of substitution, well, to a lot of people who don't understand what's going on, it sounds an awful lot like God the Father giving his son to sacrifice. It sounds a lot like cosmic child abuse. Well, no, because actually you've forgotten the thing. It's called the Trinity, that the fact that God's righteous servant, Jesus, the suffering servant, is God himself. So this is God choosing to crush himself and to cause himself to suffer and to be an offering of sin. It is his choice. We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Is there any other way? No, well then I'm on for this. It is my choice to do this for you. Why? 
We sung at the 915 in this hymn, There's a Green Hill. It says, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. And then in verse 11, it says, he, after his soul has suffered, he will see the light of life. Here is a picture of resurrection. And he will be satisfied. Jesus, in his resurrected form, looks over what he's done, what he's been through. And he says, you were worth it. It says it was his pleasure to suffer. It's not about, oh, I'm enjoying this. This is about when someone does something for you and you say, thank you very much. He says, my pleasure. I am so glad I could do this for you. Why? Because you are worth it. Jesus looks at his hands and his feet, the nail marks that are still there for eternity and from eternity. And then he looks at us as saved souls and he says, do you know what? You're welcome. You're worth it. It was my pleasure for you. He poured out, emptied himself to death. And that is why we can read in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because he was willing to pour out his life unto death and he intercedes for the sinners even now. And even now when Satan comes and tells you, do you remember that little sin that you did a few years ago? Jesus interrupts him and says, paid. What about this one? Paid. Paid. All of it paid for with hands that have got nail marks. You were worth it. Let's grasp that wonder again, shall we? Of a story that was written 500 years ago, 500 years before the events actually happened, but a story which goes over eternity. Jesus, God among us, suffered and died for you. Amen. Catherine's going to come up with the band. And...